You're listening to the Ticker Podcast from IR Magazine, a roundup of this week's leading stories and industry comment from the world of investor relations. Direct from our central London studio, here's your host, Rory Havelock. This week on the Ticker Podcast, it's a back-to-school special with a look at new IR certifications, growing Australian pay packets, and a roundup of the 2015 US proxy season. Welcome back to the Ticker Podcast. It's your weekly roundup of the top stories from around the world of investor relations. And this week we are back with Tim Human, Condice Tomopity, and Garnet Roach all in a room together. Hello, guys. Hello. Hello. Uh, this week, like I say, we are in a celebratory mood because not only are all the kids back to school and crucially away from waking me up very early in the morning, um, but uh, Her Royal Highness Queen Elizabeth II has become the UK's longest serving monarch with a rule that's lasted 23,226 days. Wow, the impressed looks around the room are incredible. Uh, the news of the usual prayer anti royals debate, but I wondered, guys, is the Ticker Podcast considered a royalist production? Do we reckon? I think I'm broadly in favour. I mean, we, we have we have the Queen who we can roll out and make people feel important when they come and visit us, and then for ourselves, we've got. Prince Philip, who provides endless entertainment, so I think it's a good package overall. Yeah, I would I would agree. I'm not um not a royalist in the sense of you know a plate. I'm not a plate collector or something like that. Um, no. But I I do like the. I think we get quite a lot of entertainment out of the royal family, and I really enjoy that. Particularly BuzzFeed articles. They were very good about the Queen this week. Oh, you did. Send, you sent that around to us, didn't you? Yeah. Particularly good. Um, her superimposed on the Iron Throne of Game of Thrones. Of course, particular um, favorite. So, yes, mother that, of corgis. I th- I, exactly. I thought. That that definitely made it worth it. Over to our the French view on the royals, Candice. Um, well, um, I'm not a French royalist. No. I don't ever had a look at the... the um, I don't think there are many of those left, are there? <laughs> not many. There are some, um, how do you say, contenders? Well, coming from a, a Republican country, I just have to say that uh, I hope François Hollande will not be reigning that long <laughs> in France. <laughs> Well, I also have to say my son, uh, Joseph, pipped Prince George to the post. He was supposed to be born a week after, and he was born a week before, July 2013. And have they had a chance to rub shoulders yet? Well, almost, actually. We, we, um, we see them often at the Kensington Garden Playground, the oh, Diana yeah. Memorial Playground. So, yes, uh, maybe one day. <laughs> <laughs> my, my dad was born on the same day as the now sadly passed away Queen Mother. And so when he would wake up on his birthday, he'd switch on the radio and they play the national anthem, and he used to pretend that they were playing it for him. <laughs> oh, that's lovely. I mean, that's really lovely. But then after she passed away, they stopped playing it. Yes, yes, and Joseph was born on uh, Bastille Day, so uh, fireworks every year for his birthday. Just for him. What a, what a lucky kid. Well, and as we previously mentioned, uh, the beginning of September is filled with the unenthusiastic pitter-patter of feet heading back to school, and it's no different in the IR world either. Also, Condice tells me this week. Yes, well, September is back to school for IROs as well. And apparently uh, there will soon be new IR certifications cropping up. NIRA announced at its annual conference in June that it was planning to launch its first ever certificate um, early next year. Bob Burton, the chair of the Professional Development Committee, explained the uh, certificate is an asset not only for newcomers in the profession, but also for IR veterans who uh, want to stay on top of new regulations. So at the moment, everything is still in the works, but uh, we know candidates will have to have uh, a couple years' experience, either in IR or a related field and to answer 100 questions. Burton said a beta version should be ready to launch next spring. IROs in America should soon be able to add the coveted IRC designation to their name. What's new on our side of the Atlantic, though, Condice? Well, you know the UK IR Society offers a certificate in IR that can be taken also through partner associations in Malaysia, Russia, Indonesia, Hong Kong, Singapore, and the Middle East. 
So they've been considering taking it to the next level with a post-CIR degree. But don't you guys just love exams? <laughs> I already passed the CIR and would just, uh, would just love to study for a harder version. <laughs> I haven't uh, saying I haven't even studied the, un, you know, the undergrad CIR, as it were. So now I have no idea how insanely hard that must be as an exam. Oh, undergrad CIR, that's a good one. <laughs> Sue Scholes, the IR Society chair, said she wants to, to hear from expert members who can add to the debate on, quote, what a post-CIR qualification should look like, whether um, it would be helpful to have independent accreditation, and if so, from whom. So please do get in touch with her if you want to contribute. It'll be interesting to see what actually turns up on the curriculum, in inverted commas. Um, I was listening to one of our other IR Magazine podcasts, a little plug there. Um, Jeff Gazette, who hosts our IR Magazine R, spoke to uh, someone from Fordham University, who I think you guys know off of the Masters in Investor Relations. Um, and the, some of the stuff they include on there is the ethics of investor relations, and there's lots of stuff about new web tools. It must be quite interesting to have to exactly work out what IROs need to know. And presumably quite a lot of it is dependent on your country or your sector or your industry. Yes, Neary hired a specialist who interviewed IROs and, and thought about all of the different things that go into what makes a good IRO to sort of help build the, the, the certification. Um, it's a very sort of lengthy and quite expensive process, I think. If you want to hear more about that, of course, you can find that podcast on our SoundCloud. But um, Condice, um, when are we going to see which of Neary or the IR Society will be you know, firing first on their new certifications? So that's going to be early next year. And uh, actually, I almost forgot to mention Australia, uh, where ERA, the, the local IRO association, recently set up a, a continuing professional development program. So IROs who study for their certificate or, or diploma in IR um, also get CPD credits. And interesting you bring up Australia, Condis, because we are going to move over to a land down under with Tim, who has been looking inside Australian IRO's pay packets and has some info for us there. Yes, Australians haven't had a whole lot to chew about this, this summer over the last few months, seeing as they lost uh, the ashes very sadly to us. <laughs> but now they do have something to chew about because um, a new survey has come out that says that their salaries and their bonuses have increased over the last year. The survey was conducted by the Australian Investor Relations Association and it covers IROs based in Australia and in New Zealand. So, I mean, the crucial question is how much more are they earning this year? Well, the median salary range this year is uh, 275000 to 325000 Australian dollars and that's 50000 higher than it was last year. To help with a global comparison, that's roughly 200000 to 230000 US dollars. So a fair whack, I'd say. And in terms of the bonuses... Um, the median bonus is 21 to 30% of base salary this year. And that's up as well from 11 to 21% last year. Are there any particular reasons for this huge increase? Well, the CEO of the um, Era Association, Ian Matheson, has commented on the, uh, on the findings. Interestingly, he suggests that they are tied to regulatory changes that have been taking place in Australia. For example, a couple of years ago, there was a firm that got into trouble for selectively disclosing some information, and that's led to a lot of talk about how our IR can be improved, the release of new IR guidelines, and so on. Matheson says the findings show that IR is becoming of greater importance in Australia, and that companies are hiring new IROs to help them meet uh, the new regulatory requirements, as well as manage changes in the, uh, in the investment community. And are there any tips for you know, how IROs could maybe boost their own pay in the report? Well, there are a couple of key areas where pay packets differed between the respondents. The survey shows, and we've seen this in other markets as well, that where IROs have additional responsibilities, such as corporate affairs or corporate communications, those people tend to get the very highest pay packets. The survey also finds that where you report within the company correlates strongly with how much you earn. Those IROs who report directly to the CFO or CEO had a base salary roughly a third higher than those who reported to other senior executives. And how does that compare to IROs in the rest of the world? 
Well, here at IR Magazine, as, as we know, um, we do surveys on a global basis into salaries. We split these results by head of IR positions and then team positions. So the, the latest survey that we did, which actually came out almost a year ago, found the average salary of a head of IR globally is about the same as the median salary in Australia, roughly 200 to 250,000 US dollars. So I think that shows Australian and New Zealand IROs are doing pretty well because their average salary is the same as a head of IR salary globally. Hmm. I think I'm going to move to <laughs> somewhere down under. <laughs> yeah, well, I was just going to finish up by saying here in the UK, we're always hearing about people who are emigrating to Australia and it's got the good life and the pay's better there. And that seems to apply to investor relations as well as everything else. You don't say anything about uh, IR journalists' salaries in, in Australia and New Zealand. They're just generally poor everywhere, aren't they? <laughs> <laughs> I think so. There's also a host of creatures that are trying to kill you in Australia, which you don't want to spend too much time around. Spindly killerfish and the like. From one pay debate then to another, but over to the Pacific Ocean, to the US of A, where thoughts on executive remuneration no doubt featured on a number of ballots in this year's proxy season. Garnet, you've been having a quick review of this. What can you t- tell us? Yeah, so um, I've been having a look at the latest Proxy Pulse report, which offers a roundup of the 2015 US proxy season. And so the report pulls data from more than 4,000 US company meetings held between the start of the year and June 30th. And I've been looking at a few of the bigger trends of the year. As everybody will know, one of the biggest stories has been proxy access, um, with many of the proposals submitted by the Office of the New York City Comptroller. And the cause also gained support from some big funds, with a number of companies, um, including Bank of America and GE, changing their bylaws to allow proxy access without waiting for a proposal or a vote. But of the 80 proposals that did go to a vote, Proxy Pulse notes that 70% of these received majority support and average 57% of votes cast. This development, write the authors, is, quote, significant given that during the 2014 proxy season, only 10 proposals were voted on, with three attaining a majority. They also explain that shareholder rights actually appear to be the driving force behind the proposals, rather than dissatisfaction with any specific directors. And interestingly, there is quite a large gap between votes cast by institutional investors and those voted by retail investors. And so retail investors, in fact, didn't really support proxy access. Um, 85% of the shares they cast were against these proposals, with institutions, on the other hand, supporting um, proxy access 61% of the time. What do the authors have to say about you know, how they expect the proxy access issue to progress from here? Well, they actually expect well over 100 proxy access proposals to come to a vote by the end of the 2015 season. Um, Next week, we're actually going to see shareholders vote in the rescheduled Whole Foods AGM, um, the company which, of course, kind of kicked off the proxy access debate this year, um, though it later backed down and amended its own bylaws. Well, I guess we'll see how exactly how investors feel about the company shortly then. Uh, what else has the Proxy for Pulse report picked up on? Well, among other issues, including split CEO and chair roles, director communications and director elections, it covers say on pay, noting that around 10% of companies fail to get the support of at least 70% of shares voted. And that's actually an improvement from last season um, when 13% failed to surpass the benchmark. And the authors say it's important for companies to take note of poor say on pay performance, as this often translates into low director support the following year. They say, quote, 46% of companies that failed their say on pay vote in 2014 and had a director election this season had at least one director fail to receive 70% support. 
The authors also looked at how company market cap can affect both share ownership and voting participation. So overall, 68% of US public company shares are held by institutional investors, um, but this actually drops to just 28% at microcaps and hits a high of 72% at large cap companies. When it comes to voting, 91% of institutional investors voted their shares this season, but at microcap companies, only 72% of institutional shares were voted, and that's actually an 8 percentage point drop from the previous season, which is quite big. Um, and that compares to 91% at large cap companies. Uh, well, we'll have some more information on uh, those numbers, hopefully, in the new version of the Global Practice Report. As Tim mentioned, the last one came out almost a year ago, so it's time for the next one to... Uh, it's almost time for you guys to find out all the juicy information contained in the new one. Uh, I think it'll be released about end of October, beginning of November, but yours truly is writing it, so who knows how long it will take. But for more information, do keep your eyes peeled on the website, irmagazine.com, and I'm sure there'll be some updates soon. Um, but thanks for joining us again, guys. Um, Condice, you're actually off away again this week, aren't you, to the Middle East? Yes, indeed. I'm off to the sun and the heat of Dubai. Um, I'm going to attend the uh, Middle East IR Society Conference. And awards, I believe. Oops, <laughs> I almost forgot about the awards. <laughs> the most exciting part of the Rasmus has, and you almost missed out. Well, have fun there, Condice. We will catch up with you again on Friday. And thanks, everyone, for joining us this week. We'll see you next time. Thank Bye. you. Bye. You've been listening to the Ticker Podcast from IR Magazine. For free access to all the latest global investor relations news and analysis, register at irmagazine.com or download the app.